Coming up next, the booking reads Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. The booking. My name is Nathan Albertson. I'm your humble and video host. I'm joined by Jacob Menzel, the pastor who's master of reading. Hey, Jake, how's it going? It is going well. I'm also joined by Brandon Chastine, the PhD ABD. How are you doing, Brandon? Great. I'm glad to hear it. Today we're going to discuss Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. Bong. Maybe we'll even find out for whom the bell tolls. Brandon, any theories on for whom the bell tolls? <laughs> tolls for you. For me? Isn't that right? Isn't that and for you, listener. I think it does toll for me. Because what, the one thing that I always say about myself is that I am involved in mankind. No man is an island no entire is an to island. himself. Therefore, I never send, personally, I never send to know for whom the bell tolls. Because yeah. I'm like, it tolls for me. Well, shall we talk about Maria? <clears throat> what is there to say about <laughs> Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> How do you catch a cloud and pin it down? How do you find a word that means Maria? Wish fulfillment? <laughs> Sexist stereotype? Clown? <laughs> Any thing you know you'd like to tell her? Stop it! <laughs> like, don't have sex with guys that you've just met. <laughs> but how do you make her stay? And listen to what you say. How do you solve a problem like Maria, fellas? Feminists <laughs> hate her. Christians are uneasy about her. I'm guessing I was uneasy about her. Yeah. Uh, how did you guys... <laughs> let me just lay it out there. You can say what you want. How did you guys feel about Maria? No, I thought she was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> if I could write a woman, I'd write her just like Maria. <laughs> she was sweet and vulnerable and completely devoted and... Possibly mentally retarded. <laughs> Possibly mentally retarded. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. Um, Certainly stunted. Not a whole person. Well, the obvious criticism of Maria is that she is a, you know, the wish fulfillment character of an oversexed, undersatisfied bullfighting misogynist did you feel like that's what she was an over say that again <laughs> <laughs> let me read from my notes wish here. fulfillment of a the wish fulfillment mi- character of an oversexed undersatisfied misogynist huh. <laughs> seems feasible yeah actually. i, I, I seem kind of buy that yeah yeah <laughs> Next question, please. <laughs> I, I, I sort of feel like Maria is just a vehicle for the romance of the moment. I, I question whether or not Hemingway knows who Maria is. It is true that when you're thunderstruck by love, you can read somebody as being that. It may well be that Maria, if you want to defend Hemingway a little bit, you could say maybe Maria has all kinds of nuance that Robert Jordan's just simply incapable, maybe too selfish to notice. Mm-hmm. And so he just simply sees her as this sweet, submissive, willing kind of thing, which obviously if they got married and moved to Montana, he'd probably quickly figure out that she wasn't. Mm-hmm. Okay. But so, I don't know. so you think the novel is pretty much Jordan's perspective then? Robert Jordan, like it's well, that's another. There's, there's no omniscience at all involved. There's a weird. I found it very weird that it would sometimes jump out of Robert Jordan's perspective. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Is that the if, sort of 
Well, well, I, I, under, I kind well, you of, get Anselmo's perspective. You get perspectives yeah. that you wouldn't have. It would be weird. Like Robert Jordan would be walking out of a cave and you'd expect to follow him. But suddenly you'd just get a couple lines of what Pilar was thinking. And, and I did, th- that felt weird to me. I wasn't yeah, sure right, what to make of it. You get the scenes where Anselmo's by himself, right? The one scene where he's waiting in the snow mm-hmm. and he's not going to leave. That's not right. from Jordan's perspective. Right. So but the, the question is, is yeah, I do think it's a lot of th- – third-person narrative going on here in the sense that you don't get a lot of the omniscience of the narrator as you do, for example, with Pride and Prejudice or with <clears throat> Steinbeck. Right. So then the the way to really answer the question is to think through the novel, does Hemingway ever appear? And if he does, how does he present Maria? Or is it all from Robert Jordan and other people's perspective? Hemingway doesn't appear in the same sense that Steinbeck just says, hey, I'm going to tell you about the thighs of women's clutches now because, you know. I think it would be the, the thighs, thighs of women's <laughs> clutches. Whatever. <laughs> Earlier you had a Calvary running through the woods. I, yes. I always mess that up. The Cal- hill uh, is Calvary. Calvary. And the thing is Cal- Cavalry. Cavalry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you'll hear me do that again. Yeah. Well, so, so. Is there anybody else in the novel that simply functions you, as a symbol or as a. Can you think back on your life and recognize a Maria somewhere? Yeah. I was quickly disillusioned about multiple Marias in my life. That's the way that I think about Maria, too. I think of. She laughed that's for why about I four said what I next. exactly. That's why I said what I said about her being a vehicle for Jordan's romance. Those moments, because I think yeah, there are lots of girls. And the the farther back I go, the younger I get, the more Maria ish my memories of different girls become. Mm-hmm. Really, that's that's part of why I said earlier that you know a lot of this just really feels immature to me. Do you think that Hemingway's being mature, or he's portraying an immature character? His view of romance and love is immature. You think Hemingway? Is Absolutely, I think immature. he's immature. Yeah, I agree. I agree because you don't get the sense that he's criticizing Robert Jordan for this. No, he he thinks it's La Gloria. Yeah, yeah, right. And honestly, it, it takes me back to middle school romances. It takes me back to my first kiss. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes me back to the where did the noses go? <laughs> yeah, it takes me back to the middle school dance. It takes me back to the party, yep. the Halloween. You know, on Halloween, you got in when you were fourteen or thirteen. You got to go to a party and be there with girls, and who knows what would happen. I go, I go back to dances. I go back to. Those kinds of moments, first week of college, romances, all of that sort of thing. That's what these four days in the life of Robert Jordan remind me of. Mm-hmm. And it's not a happy thing. Not for me. I mean, in the moment, it's... I can understand how Robert Jordan could be over the moon. Absolutely. The oh, yeah. But yeah, I think we've all be been there. They survived. Maybe it was best that it ended when it did, you know. I think we've all no, been there, yeah. but 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 to live your life romanticizing that. And it is the most dangerous thing, I think, for especially a young person that would read this book is to be taught by Hemingway to romanticize this. Well, yeah, that's where you get the sexual revolution. If that's what you're looking for, that doesn't last. That doesn't make for a good marriage. If 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 we're to believe, if we're try, if we're going to try and draw a psychological, a realistic psychological portrait of Maria based on what we have. The only way I can understand her is as someone that was just completely damaged by oh, yeah. seeing her parents die, by being gang raped, and now doing the opposite of what she should be doing. She's she's numbing her pain by – I mean, I don't think this is what Hemingway was trying to say. But if I was to try and make sense of Maria as a as a person that would actually do these things, the only way I could understand her is as a incredibly 
broken. Needy. Needy. Not someone to be idealized. Who needs security and finds somebody that she's told right. she can trust by somebody, by a woman that she trusts. Yeah. And, uh, and just, so latches on to him. And things like her, I don't know how explicit we want to be, but things like her being too sore but still offering to take care of him are just like, honey, you're broken. Heming, some of Hemingway's reality pops through there when... um one of the scenes where you'd mentioned like that and then where she says, no, not this time. And then Robert Jordan says, okay. And acts like he's happy, but actually secretly he's disappointed. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he has what I take to be a fake. Oh, but you're sore. Yeah. Oh, please. Oh yeah. You woke her up kissing her. I don't. Yeah. Like, (laughs) yeah. It's just like, no, no, no. And there's uh, some similarities there with his running to drink and absinthe to, these are things that he – there's a scene right after he thinks about his father. He forgives his father. He says uh, he understood his father and he forgave him everything and he pitied him, but he was ashamed of him. And then he says, you better not think at all, he told himself. Soon you will be with Maria and you won't have to think. That's the best way – the best way now that everything has worked out. And so Maria acts as this outlet for him so he doesn't have to think. And he really right, – uh, he uses her. He uses her and yeah. he's pretty – I mean – the amount of himself that he doesn't give her was striking to me. Yeah. The amount that she's not allowed to enter into any of his. Well, that's the thing. It's all romance and there's no friendship even. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the reality that at the end of the day, they're never going to be friends. And so, well, maybe that's the wrong thing to say. I don't see their marriage <laughs> lasting, or at least if, if they do, it would totally be the grace of God in spite of all the stupid things that they've done. There's a movie called Shenandoah. This is a Jimmy Stewart movie, right? It's a Jimmy Stewart movie, and it's Civil War time, whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a scene, a couple scenes, where a man comes to propose to his, or ask for his daughter's hand or whatever, and he says, he asks if, if he likes her, and he says, well, I love her. He said, I didn't ask you that. Do you like her? And what he's trying to do is bring reality to bear on the romance and say, listen, whatever you think is love, you better like this girl. You better be friends with her. You better actually like being around her because the romance that you feel, it's not always going to be there the way that it is now in this sort of innocent young puppy lovish stage. A romance can deepen and mature over time, and it does in marriage. But there's got to be more than just this kind of pure windswept romance that Robert Jordan and Maria have. Because the one scene that troubles me is that scene where she's trying to talk about the future they might have together. And And he's kind of toying with her. He's like, well, what if you don't have socks? What if, you know, what if we don't have uh, whatever this and that and that? Then what? And she's like, well, I guess we'll just, what did she say? Make love. Right. Yeah. He's like, okay. Thanks. (laughs) It's good. <laughs> well, so you do see these relationships. Probably we've all been on the outside looking in where a guy like is Robert Jordaning some pretty young girl who's just immature enough to uh, let him. Did and you say Wickaming? Because um, that's what I. Yeah, basically. <laughs> that's what you heard. Yeah. And it's pathetic. And you end up despising the guy as just being a total user, which is all that Robert Jordan really is. Yeah. He doesn't think he is, though. No. He thinks that there's something real going on and they have some kind of deep connection. Maybe maybe Papa Hemingway thinks so too, but... Well, Papa Hemingway also went through, what, four or five marriages? Four or five wives, multiple affairs. He was a bullfighter. Everything for him was... 
catharsis. Yeah, catharsis. No, no, it no. has to be the int- that's that's one of the things about what he likes in the Spaniards. Right? He likes this intensity. This mm. he sees this real. You love them, you hate them. They're yeah. either dastardly, hateable yeah. villains, and then the next moment they're yeah. the most kind and hospitable and sweet people that you'll meet. And so, always in the back of this is the the threat of death, the reality that they're all likely going to die. And Robert Jordan is trying to find different ways to get out of thinking about it. And he has various methods to do it. He has his drink. He has Maria. And then in the chapter where he's thinking about his father, a lot of these things come out. There's that scene where he's thinking about the gun and he says, you know, you got to stop and think, remember. And he says, just remember something concrete. That's all you have to do is just remember something concrete. And so that's what happens even at the end when he's dying or about to die is he tries and remember concrete things. And he says, you know, remember this, but he says, I can't. And he says, remember water. And he says, okay, yeah, water. It'll be like water. And then he's like, no, you're lying to yourself. It's interesting that Hemingway does have to make it a virtue to avoid thinking about death. He's here. He is trying to deal with mortality. The the whole book is death and sex and mostly death. And he's got to, throughout the whole course of the book, justify not thinking about death as a noble thing somehow, avoiding actually facing it as a noble thing while having already sort of having faced it in the philosophical sense mm-hmm. and then decided I'm not going to be ruled by the fear of it. But the way that I'm not going to be ruled by the fear of it is absinthe and Maria, which is everybody's life. Right. We're ruled by the fear of death die. and yeah. we fill our lives up with distractions. The fact is people are listening to this podcast right now in the car because in some cases – they just can't stand the silence. And so every moment of your life, you're filling it up. We're getting really meta right here. But every moment in your life, you're filling it up from the moment you wake up to the time you go to bed with noise that keeps you from facing the reality of death. Music comes on with the alarm clock. You step into the car and it's more music or it's a podcast. You get home, it's food, it's drink, it's TV, whatever it is. And then you crash and then you do it all again. And it's all... A conspiracy that we play with ourselves to keep us from facing the fact that death is real. We're going to die. We're going to face God's judgment. And for Hemingway to take that and turn it into some kind of noble thing because it's in in service of some greater purpose that everybody can acknowledge is meaningless is just, it's just wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> So stop listening to this podcast, man. <laughs> Go live life. Touch some pine needles. <laughs> oh, yeah. But even that, in the sense of – I was just thinking how it fits also with this other undercurrent of Robert Jordan being the guy who knows the truth. Because mm-hmm. there's some sense that there's something special about Robert Jordan. Right. Like Karakov, this guy. He says, it is why I bother with you. He said, I think you write about absolutely truly, and that is very rare. So I would like you to know some things. Right. Right. There's this Yoda. What's this truth that he's getting at and what's this truth that he knows? The fact is in Hemingway, there is nothing after death. We are all going to lose. The only question is whether you lose gracefully or not. What a small worldview that is. I mean, how I, I don't I don't do not understand how you couldn't end your life by shooting yourself like Hemingway did. If, if, if you thought that there was nothing after and if you thought that the best we could do is be graceful under the pressure of playing a pointless game, that we will lose. But that somehow writing and art 
can help you at least be aware of it so that you can do it better. Sure worked so for can, him, didn't it? Yeah, so you can fornicate better and you can fight bulls better. I, I didn't, That's the only sense, sense I can make of the ending that it is a big circle, mm-hmm. right? You get to the end. He could feel his heart beating against the pine needle floor of the forest. And then you start over again with he lay flat on the brown pine needle floor of the forest, his chin on his folded arms, right? So it's a big circle. And the, what I'm hearing is that uh, Hemingway, the prophet, has now told you it's how you can understand life through these moments of intensity and all this. And that after you get to the ending, it's like that. Uh, did you ever see the um, M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Lady in the Water? Yes. <laughs> Where it's all about uh, how wonderful the writer is and right. how the, and critic... the, the writer is actually played by M. Yeah. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, and how the writer is the prophet of truth. Right. Whatever, however vague that truth might be. I mean, it's just this. In some sense, Hemingway's just offering you a gussied-up version of that. Yeah. Know? Well, I often find that I can enter into this kind of thing, that I can really be seduced by it. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I didn't feel myself being seduced this time. Maybe it just comes with age and wisdom and experience and godliness, I hope. But I did not find this book to be very seductive. When Hemingway is saying, there is only now, there is only now, there is only now, 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 I was just thinking, No. You know, that I can't think that. I can see the future. I can see the past. I have a soul that strives within me, that sees both. And yeah. I, I have to make sense of it some way. I cannot drink myself into forgetting the reality of who I am and only looking at the now. It's just not possible. I can be really depressed and think that the future and the past and the now suck. But the one thing I can't do is pretend like they don't exist, confine it all to experience and to pleasure and to some self-made meaning through through art and experience. It just doesn't work. It's stupid. And you see where it leads. I can think of people I went to college with that are living the Hemingway dream, mm-hmm. and it's taken them nowhere. Well, it's always very sexy when you're young. When you're 20, 30, you can make something like this look sexy, but you have to look at the... Eventually, you look like Woody Allen. Right, exactly. Woody Allen was funny when he was 20. He's not so funny anymore. Well, it is it is the iceberg. And so those scenes that you're referencing, the now, now, now scenes, they really are a good test of what's beneath the surface there because he's showing you the tip of the iceberg and you're going to be seduced or taken by it, either by how much you deep down actually long for for what he's he's showing you, mm-hmm. or it's going to take you back to some place, some past experience or whatever that's going to sucker punch you and, and pull you away. But you know, the way that he writes it really is, it depends on what you bring to it. Mm-hmm with your past experiences and with your own, the current state of your heart at the moment that you read it. Yeah, and it was striking how differently I felt about I was very swept up by this book when I read it in my early 20s. And uh, I still enjoyed it this time, but I did not find it to be half as meaningful as I remembered it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I wanted to be I wanted to be overwhelmed by it, but I was I was underwhelmed and I wasn't quite sure if that was because I had such high expectations or because it was just underwhelming, but I think a lot of the writing was very, very impressive. Well, it's interesting to compare this but, to Steinbeck where a lot of his writing is crap. Yeah. And the story that he's telling is a good... Is so much more moving and 
compelling. Mm-hmm. And full of real meaning about life. Yeah. He... Well, it's because he's, he's willing to actually have thoughts about life beyond just... Just painting a picture of a scene. And then it having this meaning that's supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And maybe you get it, maybe you don't. Well, make your own meaning of it. Right. Yeah. What this book felt like to me as much as anything was a collection of short stories. The short story of that amazing affair we had on the forest floor. The short story of El Sordo's Last Stand. The short story of... Pablo in the village. Pablo in the village. The short story of Robert Jordan's death at the bridge. And each one of those stories was fantastic. But did they really add up to much of anything? I don't know. Honestly, if we're going to go there now, I think the two things to take from this book are don't listen to him well three things don't listen to Hemingway about sex or life or the meaning of life if you want to face your own mortality and process or try to process facing mortality this is kind of okay a kind of okay way to do it not the best but a kind of okay way to do it and if you want to learn how to write like a master then this is the place to to start Mm -hmm. because he sure is a, a a master craftsman. He's not a master of philosophy or theology. <laughs> of anything. anything. He's not a master of romance and sexuality and relationships the way that Jane Austen is. He's not a master of what what's what motivates you deep down like Steinbeck, like is. Steinbeck is. He's not a storyteller like Steinbeck, but he is a storyteller in a in a really fantastic sort of way. Well, story, Steinbeck is a biblical storyteller. Steinbeck gives you a whole picture of a history of a certain group of people. Hemingway doesn't do that. He gives you he gives you cinematic scenes. This is the first book that I've really felt like it was competing with images from movies in my head. You know, the battle scenes made me think of things from Apocalypse Now or from different movies, and I thought, gee, did the movie do it better? Or did it was I could actually stack them up against each other yeah. in a way that I couldn't with Steinbeck because it's really this this book is that's very a cinematic. good way, that's a cinematic is a very good way to think about it, and it gives you about the depth of the cinema too. Yeah. Historically, it was right at the time cinema was coming in to vogue. So they they do a lot of the same things, and part of it's intentional. Trying to get meaning from art just through a story divorced from any preaching or t- exposition, exposition mm-hmm. from the storyteller. They were tired of that sort of nonsense. And so a lot of them, they would, they would uh, look down on Steinbeck. They all thought he didn't deserve the Nobel Prize when he won it. When they do exposit, it's esoteric and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And so philosophy quickly stopped making any sense. If we had been reading Hemingway in the 1940s, mm-hmm. would we get more out of Hemingway having – it, taking Hemingway in context as opposed to the more sca- – uh, we're reading Hemingway, what, 75 years down the line. Yeah. And so we've got – so much has happened in philosophy and the arts that – yeah, I don't know. You mean I like, don't even know what I'm trying to ask. You're asking how new was this? Like would it have been – I'm asking if question, I right? – would I bring more to it, or I don't know what I'm asking. Oh, one yeah, thing. One thing. That, when was this book published? This was published in forty nineteen forty. One thing that you would bring to it, I think, is you'd feel the you'd feel some of the existential dread of war because mm-hmm. World War II wouldn't have been won yet. The Spanish War would have just been lost. 
I think, mm-hmm. um, or maybe still in, in its death throes. So you would feel this kind of, I think the book would be more, the whole idea of grace under pressure, of how to act, would be very visceral to you in a way that it's simply not. You would have, you would know people from your town that died mm-hmm. fighting overseas, or maybe you would be overseas fighting. We entered the war, what, 41, you know, a year after this book, was, wasn't it 41? So you'd, I think you'd feel it in your guts in a way that we just don't have any context for. Yeah, we're kind of, war is divorced from us in a way that it wasn't for the people at this time. You can't just pack up your bags and go fight against ISIS, right? That's not allowed. But, yeah, so I think there would be that element to it. There would, it would be more visceral, like you said. And also there would be, depending on who you were, there would be the excitement of somebody doing something new. This would be a different style. Well, it's, I think it's safe to say that every book that's come after Hemingway has been influenced by his writing style. Yeah. You read a popular novel today, it reads a little bit like Diet Hemingway. Yeah. And so there's a whole literature, both the literature of enlightenment and of the literature of entertainment was all much more verbose. And mm-hmm. No, he changed he changed literary style. A lot came out of the 20s and the 30s with what those people did with language. It was sim- a lot similar, for example, to the Elizabethan period, where a lot changed for better, for better and worse. You know, I think maybe when I was asking my question, I was thinking about a conversation that you and I had probably months ago about... That's Nathan and Jake, dear listener. Yes. A conversation that Nathan and I had a couple months ago about Jane Austen's expository style Mm. and how, you know, she was able to process things on such a precise Mm. and minute level. And and you get the sense that uh, people in general were able to do that for themselves more Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, it sufficed for Hemingway to leave hints because people could think those hints out for themselves. Okay. They could follow those trails. They could follow those trains. But now, you know, so far down the line, you, you, when we when we did the Pride and Pride and Prejudice episode, I can't tell you how many people I talked to that were just blown away. Like they read Austin for the first time and were like, "Who thinks like this about themselves or anybody else? I don't understand." Hmm. It's teaching me how to think about myself and how to understand myself. That level of introspection isn't commonplace. Mm-hmm. And so you take the absence of that level of introspection and you bring it to bear on, you bring it to Hemingway and what are you what are you supposed to do with that? Yeah, because his whole iceberg principle is assuming that like you said, that his reader would be able to fill in the gaps would be able to build from that story and get at this truth with quotation marks around it and so what you're saying is, like you were saying earlier, with all the music and all of the Facebook and all the world around us that kind of has deadened any attempt to engage introspection. Well, I What happens to Hemingway, it just becomes a flat story with no storyteller to guide you through it. When maybe with Hemingway, and I think you're right, um, the intention is that it would build and it would lead you, leave you pondering and meditating because i mean you give this to your average young person today are they going to leave the book trying to tie it together with the john dunn quote for example like what's what in the world does that mean why why start out with john dunn if it really is just simply about 
you know, living in the moment, then why have that done quote open it up, right? So there's supposed to be some meditation involved, like thinking about what these deaths mean and what they mean in relation to you as the reader. Just the fact that Hemingway had read Dunn's meditations shows yeah. a level of insight, understanding, and ability to just comprehend life and yeah. think with the great thinkers of all the ages that a lot of people don't engage with now. Yeah, and so if, and I think you're right about it, it kind of being more vignettes than it actually is a coherent one story. And so the prime example of it is Pilar's story about the murders in the village. Mm -hmm. And so I think each story kind of deals with this question of death and I don't know. It's almost like variations on a theme. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. So your question is, are people too people. emotionally dead and dumb nowadays to read it? <laughs> Not us, obviously. <laughs> I, did, I, mean, I didn't know that that was my question, but maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe that was the question. I think that there I was is asking. some death of. You both have the death of imagination, and you have the idolizing of the cheap version of it, mm -hmm. right? So, with like Tim Burton. Right. I wasn't trying to be lame and say as as Beyonce's Lemonade made it impossible for us to really get Hemingway. Right. I know. But the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. um, Beyonce's Lemonade. Oh boy, I can't believe we just name-dropped Beyonce's Lemonade. This <laughs> is what everybody's talking right. about, isn't it? Come for the, for whom the bell tolls, what they, the what, what they were talking about a month or two ago, whenever <laughs> right, this when, goes by out. By the time this comes out. Um, yeah, people are too dumb. I guess we've already covered this a little bit. This book does have a lot of uh, questionable content in it. And I think it's worth talking a little bit about that. Pride and Prejudice was G. Jungle Book was PG. East of Eden was like a soft PG-13. This book was like a hard PG-13 or maybe a soft R. It's the first book that we've read that's like that. So just generically for people that are reading along with us. I don't know. Let's just talk big picture. How do, how do Christians approach questionable content in books just in general? Does anybody want to speak to that? Well, I guess this falls to <laughs> me. Is, does anybody want to speak to that? Reverend Mensel? <laughs> <laughs> so the Bible doesn't give us a ban list, right? It doesn't give us a, wouldn't uh, that be nice? Yeah. Wouldn't it? But the Bible does give us principles, and, you know, there are questions that we have to ask when we come to anything. Is this good? Is this wholesome? Is it profitable? Is it going to, one way or another, help my ability to grow in godliness or to be useful or helpful to to God's people or to my neighbor? Is this going to feed my sinful desires? Is this, is this going to be, be food for the flesh? Is this going to be food for the soul? Whenever we come to anything that's questionable, there has to be a time and place for us to cut off our right hand or to gouge out our eye. There has to be a place where we say no. And uh, that, that place is left up to us to determine with the wisdom that God gives us. Well, what I would say about discernment with cons conservative Christian type people, the kind of people that probably listen to the booketing, I usually see two sort of equal and opposite errors. One of them is an old person error, generally speaking. One of them is a young person error. The old person error is to draw a completely arbitrary line in the sand and to think that that 
will make them holy, to think that that will be sanctifying. So they'll say, we don't read any books that were written before 1902. Yeah. We don't watch any R-rated movies. We only listen to Bach. We only listen to Bach. The reason that that's obviously bad is because it doesn't actually make you have any discernment. So yeah, maybe you don't watch any R-rated movies, but then you end up watching every godless, filthy PG-13 rated movie. Maybe you and don't. And feeling good about yourself for and it. And feeling good yeah. about it. Feeling smug about yourself and for maybe it. Maybe you don't read any book written after 1902. And sure, you miss a lot of bad stuff that way, but you also miss a lot of good stuff that way. And as a Christian homeschooler who was kind of in that milieu, you, I can personally testify that there that there's a lot of dirty books that were written before 1902. You know, the Marquis de Sade did not come along in the, to give an absolutely extreme example, the Marquis de Sade did not come along after 1902. He wasn't one of the lost generation. <laughs> and then there's yeah. the, the flip side to that, which is the the young person's heir. Which Who usually is, sees the old people drawing these arbitrary lines. The arbitrary lines feel oppressive and they say, you know, I don't want to do that. That's just arbitrary and it's not leading to godliness. So, yay! <laughs> I'm going to understand the culture. I'm going to be able to talk with yep. people at right. the water cooler. Gonna, I'm going to be... Engage yeah. in the culture. Have a dialogue with the culture. And that just really means I'll be the same as my pagan friends. I just won't draw any lines anywhere, ever. Yay, I'm free to let all my lusts run free under a principle of Christian liberty. Right. It's, it's going to help me understand sin so much better. <laughs> right. <laughs> just like tasting the, the fruit was going to help Eve understand. Yeah. Right. Well, it did do that, I guess, but... Yeah, <laughs> and it does do that. <laughs> and it leads to death, Yep, <laughs> idiot. <laughs> what I want to say to the old people, the, the, the line, the arbitrary lines is, don't be legalists, that doesn't lead to godliness. I really like to be the, the curmudgeon with the young people, just because I like to be contrary in that yeah, way. Me too. And so, to come along and ask if you'd like to watch that with your mom, right? <laughs> you know... <laughs> Because everybody resents that question. I resent it, and I resent asking it, and I'm exactly the kind of person that likes to watch things that I would never want to watch with my mom. And so I just if I'm going to live with that discomfort, I'm going to... Well, the thing that I like to say to young people is, okay, fine. Fight Club is a wonderful evocation of our sinful natures, and it really helps us understand the fatherlessness of our culture. Okay, great. You think that life is short. Whatever. You know. But... <laughs> just tell me something, someplace where you drew the line. We can quibble over this or that. Let's agree to disagree. But at least be able to tell me where you suffered for godliness, where you're different than your pagan friends, what you don't watch, what you don't mm-hmm. read. Give me a list, you know. Tell me five things that came out this year. You know, tell me about the, the Quentin Tarantino movie that you didn't go see. Tell me the album that you didn't buy that you would have liked to buy. At least, if you're going to be Mr. Culturally Savvy guy, Christian guy, at least be able to tell me... Where do you deny yourself? Where do you deny yeah. yourself? And and if you can't do that, then all your arguments for why this or that horrible filthy thing is actually teaching us about our, our our sin just fall flat and you're a moron and i don't trust you and here's the here's the curmudgeon again tell me how much time you spent reading your bible yeah yeah tell me how much time you've spent reading something that's actually profitable spiritually helpful to you mm-hmm. yeah what boundaries and protections are you providing for yourself against the power of these stories? Because whether they want to admit it or not, they can't prevent these things from shaping them. Mm-hmm. No, right? what goes in comes yeah. out. So if they're going to watch these shows and listen to these this music, 
that its whole purpose that it was created for is to evoke emotion and to make you feel a certain way and then to shape your view of the world your character out of that yeah your your character it, yeah it's going to work that's what art I mean, does a good artist is going to do that you you read Hemingway he's going to shape you mm-hmm. art is meant to teach you yeah. how to think and how to feel about yeah. about reality and so one way or another it's teaching you and inculcating in right. you yeah. art is inescapably didactic there's that's no right. such yeah. thing as a story without a moral yeah. the cat yeah. in the hat we don't have to do talk about what the cat in the hat's moral is. We're not going to exegete it. We're not going to exegete it, but but it's there. It's there. <laughs> the moral of the cat. Anar- anarchist felines <laughs> will bring destruction with them. <laughs> it's as much about how you engage with with art, and can you? Do you have the strength and the maturity and the discernment to engage with art in an active way? Mm-hmm. Or can you only engage with it in a passive way and don't fool yourself about it? Recognize when you're being carried along and when you're being manipulated. Mm-hmm. But be able to engage with everything you touch as a Christian. Don't ever take off your Christian hat. Mm-hmm. Engage Hemingway as a Christian. Engage the Marvel movies as a Christian. Right. Engage... Steinbeck as a Christian, and you will learn, mm-hmm. and you will grow, and you will be able to figure out, okay, well, what's what's good about this? What can I take from this that I couldn't get somewhere else or that I wasn't getting somewhere else? And what, what do I have to reject? And in rejecting it, how does that teach me how to how to engage with other people about this sort of thing who are coming from the same perspective that Hemingway is coming from or from the same perspective that J.J. Abrams is coming from mm-hmm. or Disney or whatever? Mm-hmm. Right. The main thing is that, uh, as you said at the beginning, what we all want to do is find our way to turn off discernment. Mm -hmm. Wherever we draw our line, we're drawing lines because we don't want to be discerning. We don't want to engage the world as a 24-7 Christian. Mm -hmm. And that is not allowed. It is not acceptable. Because you either, as Owen says, you're either killing sin or sin is killing you. Mm -hmm. You're either... Beating sin in your own life, you're either beating the devil or he's beating you down. There's no neutral zone ever. Never. Well, I think I would add, you would add, I would add is to the young Christian man who's listening, there should be stuff, you know. You can take what you just said and you can turn it into as long as I'm engaging with it in a Christian way, oh, yeah. I can do just whatever watch whatever I want listen to it and that's often the kinds they use the kinds of language that you just used to justify sin so mm-hmm. you know just don't watch the movie with the nasty sex scene you know have some lines I don't care what those lines I mean I, I do care what well, those lines are but our lines might be a little different have some real lines that you don't cross have some filmmakers whose work you will not watch you know yep. have some things that if this happens in a movie I just don't watch it. You have to be able to say what is the point of this? Mm -hmm. How is this better than anything else I could be doing right now? Right. What is this feeding in me? And the other important thing that you said, Jake, was live a godly life. Read your Bible. Go to church. Serve in the church. Help people. Get married. Whatever it is. The more more of your life that you spend filling it up with good and wholesome and healthy things less time you're going to have right and your discernment will be sharpened and you'll lose your appetite for things that are bad such that you know it's the difference between if i can use myself as a good example it's the difference between 20 year old nathan coming to for whom the bell tolls and 30 year old nathan coming to, to for whom the bells tolls my tastes have actually changed so that something that was seductive about hemingway 
no longer is seductive. And you should be able to chart that course in your life if you're doing it right. Not that I mean, I fail all the time. I don't want to put myself out there as the paragon of virtue. But if you're doing it right, you should be able to look back and see how you've lost your taste for certain things. Yeah, again, you know, the the inner curmudgeon in me wants to say, oh, you want to understand human nature by reading Hemingway. Have you read Romans 1? Yeah, that's that's right. And yeah, there are there are things that you're gonna. Uh, we wouldn't be doing this show if we didn't believe art was great, art was fun, and there were things that you could learn and understand from it. Yeah, absolutely. You're gonna have moments where somebody who's a pagan can open up human nature and explain for you Romans one better than you could understand it on your own. That's okay. We've been telling everybody to read East of Eden since we did our podcast because. Stan Steinbeck helps you understand your relationship with your father and your relationship with sin in a way that's helpful and good mm. and moving. It really matters. The, dis- the, well, the discernment comes out in who you give yourself to as far as the artists go. For example, with you were likening Robert Jordan to Wickham, and Hemingway praises a Wickham, while Austin is very discerning. In her <laughs> that's to that's the maturity. Yeah. I, think, I think it's not wrong to cast Jordan and Maria as Lydia and Wickham. But the only way the only way you're going to see that is if, as you were saying, you approach it as a Christian mm-hmm. and you have a very fierce, analytical, oppositional approach to these authors in the sense that you will appreciate his writing, but you will also not be seduced because these writers are very seductive. Right. That's why Hemingway is Hemingway. His philosophy is seductive. Woody Allen is seductive. All these guys, they're seductive. Their philosophies will... Can I say it again? Seduce you. <laughs> seduce you. Yeah. Well, well that's, that's why that's why I really want, I love that story of Hemingway pulling that stupid uh, yeah. <laughs> light fixture down on his head because it's like, this guy's a buffoon. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just being a little autobiographical is helpful mm-hmm. because I, I come from a place where movies and books and music, they were, every, they were all that I had. They were everything I gave myself to. Me and when too. I became a Christian – I knew I had to die mm-hmm. to all of that stuff. And I became a Puritan. Like, I, I threw it all away. And I didn't watch anything for a period of years. And then I said, you know what? That's dumb. And then I slammed right back into the grossness, you know? And I can say that the last five, seven years of my life have really just been trying to to strike the balance and figure mm-hmm. this well, I think you do go through phases. And one thing I would say is as much as it's bad to make arbitrary rules, sometimes you can make arbit- good arbitrary rules for yourself. There's not a reason that everybody shouldn't watch R-rated movies or everybody shouldn't read a book written after 1902 or everybody should only listen to a Bach. There may be a reason that you and your life, in order to be godly, need to have a discipline. You know, it's like some people can drink, some people are alcoholics, some people can't drink a wine cooler without going on a terrible three-day bender and those people shouldn't drink that doesn't mean everybody shouldn't drink right Mm -hmm. um there there may well be people i would say about if we want to talk more specifically about these books there may be people especially young men that shouldn't read for whom the bell tolls it might be very seductive for some people i don't have a problem with us having read it i don't have a problem with most of our listeners reading it Mm -hmm. but listen if you find yourself seduced by it if, if you find yourself warming up to some of this stuff if you find it drawing you in in a way then have have the self-knowledge to know that and 
throw the book in the trash. It's not worth yep. it. It doesn't matter how great Hemingway was as a stylist. And then grow up yeah. and mature because everything that's seductive about the romance of these books really is – it's so immature. Yeah. It's so immature. It's so shallow. And you want you want so much more. And there is so much more. Um, but you're only going to find that if you grow up and you become a man, a real man, not a posturing fake man like Hemingway, but a real man who gets a job and gets a wife and learns how to love and live with a wife. Crap. You were so crap. <laughs> <laughs> One day I'll be a real man. <laughs> that is not what I meant. <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, it it fires me up because I, I keep going back to – uh, my time in college ministry and mm. all of the guys that I just want to smack in the face. I just want to shove their nose in how shallow this view of relationships is because they, they get stuck on it. They get trapped, they get caught up and they can't get past it. And, and it's uh, devastating. And, and it yeah. ruins their lives. They throw away wonderful, beautiful, physically beautiful, even women because they're not Maria. It's yeah. not La Gloria, you know. Uh, or they spend their days pining after Maria. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that one flame, you know, trying to get back to that one fling they had back in high school or whatever. They, they spend their time living in the past. They spend their time fantasizing about that one moment when the, the, the world moved, you yeah. know. And it's like, oh, please grow up. Mm-hmm. Would you grow up? Yeah. What are you gonna say? Bro? Oh, I'm 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 thinking that they also they romanticize all this in their head while they're also loving on their computer, right? Mm. So I mean, because you have Robert Jordan, right? Maria's his romance, but also at the same time he's kissing her right after she to- tells him no. So the visceral lust is going to be there, and you've got to have the discernment to know when to call a spade a spade. And like we were talking off podcast, off off mic right. about one of the contemporaries of Hemingway, D. H. Lawrence, who wrote beautifully, but all his work is pornography. And you got to have the discernment not to read D. H. Lawrence. He just there's absolutely no reason we won't read D. H. Lawrence on this podcast. Now somebody listening is going to chafe at that because yeah. they're going to say, "Okay, you said the word pornography. The instant that you do that, you've like you've labeled it as absolutely sinful." Yeah, and chafe at it all you want. <laughs> like I said, like I said, you, you've got the to know obscenity in the milk of your chafing. <laughs> you've got to know. You've got to know when to call a spade a spade. And I have no issue saying that D. H. Lawrence is pornography. Mm-hmm. He's right artistic, on. aesthetic, beautiful right. pornography. There's good. There's well done pornography, and there's poorly done pornography. Yeah, and, it, and, and it's, a, and it's dangerous, and it has yeah. it has destroyed many many a grad student. Yeah. So just stay away from it and don't use that as an excuse. And you know what? There are other forms of pornography in that maybe you're not with the sex but then the violence. So you'll defend Tarantino or somebody like that mm. and saying, oh, it's still, you know, it's it's different. It's But he deals with death, man. Yeah. Dude, grow up. <laughs> Join a whaling ship or something. I mean, just like become yeah. a trucker. You, you want to understand how life works. Go live some Freaking life. <laughs> yeah. so. Throw away your phone and your computer and work with your hands for a little bit. Yeah, it's it, not going to be like a Tarantino movie. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> yeah, I hope not. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, listen, if anybody's chafing, if there's any especially young men out there that are chafing at us right now, 
does it stop chafing? I don't even know what that is. It sounds like something you should put lotion on. Get <laughs> <laughs> like like some medication first. <laughs> right. Stop chafing. <laughs> but the reason that we're so hard on this, we're being hard on ourselves. If that helps That's you. That's the truth. Know that we've had to repent of an awful lot of this stuff, and we've been seduced by an awful lot of it, and we've seen it be destructive in our lives, all three of us, I think, in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yep. We just want to save you some pain. Maybe we sound a little crusty, but, I mean... The amount of my life I have spent grasping for this is... It it disgusts me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything else we want to say about uh, the, the questionable content and uh, what is the earth moving... Anybody want to tackle that one? Endorphins. Just a physical thing? (laughs) It's like I was saying before. You you take two people, you throw them into an intense situation, and everything's going crazy. And death is a real imminent possibility. And everything around them is spinning and nothing is stable. And what are they going to do? They're going to latch on to each other and... When they lock eyes with each other, the world's going to spin around them. And I think that that's a a reality that many of us can relate to. And it's just that sort of romantic – it's like I said before. It's that first week of college, right? You go away from home for the first time. You're up there and everything is unfamiliar and everything is spinning and you need something stable. And that's why so much of first week of college, you have these romances that – crop up and it's really special and really unique and you know and then it falls to pieces because that's what it does it's also a senior high trip or a mission trip mission trip uh, it it, it doesn't have to be it it can be a it can be prom for goodness sake it's just something different something new and brought together with a lot of pressure and emotional intensity you know prom sort of that way in the sense that you I mean, it's the closest thing to sort of faking a wedding, right? You know, you're going to get really dressed up and have this really special moment with this one person for this one night, and maybe you're going to end up in the back of a car or in a hotel room or whatever. It's intense. Those moments are intense. And Hemingway's not bad, I, I don't think, about – it's not wrong of Hemingway to emphasize the transcendent feeling that people have because, boy, do you have that feeling like the That's world right. stops. That's right. And I love how he evokes just uh, – just it's a very subtle thing that he does, but just Robert Jordan's awareness of where Maria is in the cave, of her retreating, mm-hmm. of her coming forward, of her touching his hand. That's yeah. so what it feels like when you're in love with – and that, that the person that you're in love with or, or infatuated with is in Technicolor. Everything else is black and white. Mm-hmm. He really does a good job now, of listen, that. Now, there listen. Is, there is a place – for a lot of what he does evoke, there there are there is a reality there that can be good and clean, and it's, you know, it's what most people would have known as maybe say a honeymoon, <laughs> you know, right. like that's why the honeymooning or the honeymoon phase means anything at all, and and there are certainly other points in in your life or your marriage, you know, that can have that kind of gravity or that kind of that kind of transcendence and and may the lord bless you with much of it but can't be your primary goal in life no if, if that's is, your primary it. goal then you're gonna be like hemingway and you're gonna be divorced five times living in cuba and you're never gonna you're never gonna have a real relationship and there's not gonna be any <clears throat> real depth to your romance no, you, to your intimacy it's always gonna be that shallow and you're never gonna know exactly how shallow it is because you're gonna be convinced that it's everything, and it's not. It's one of those weird things about life. If you try to hold on to la gloria, it slips out of your fingers. 
if you try to serve God and live your life correctly, you might just get it as a nice little bonus. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think if the book does anything, it makes you think about death. The yeah, death scenes great. are all really well done, and, and you do end up. I did think, end up thinking a lot about you know which one of the guys walking down the line would I be in, in Pablo's village massacre. <laughs> that was a good. Um, yeah, in yeah. the the ways that he evokes a sense of you have the final day, the final morning, and yeah, at one point he compares it to going to school for mm-hmm. the first time. Great way to make you feel it. What was interesting is that he was already making me feel that way, and I was trying to figure out how is it. I know what this feeling is. I can imagine myself on the field of battle going to face almost certain death when I've never done anything quite like that. And then he brings that analogy in and it's like, yeah, yeah, he's evoked something visceral and real that I recognize. And I, I think he's right. The most admirable thing about Hemingway is that he, he does evoke those scenes well, and he does he does bring a bit of nobility to it. It is inspiring to think that you could handle these things with courage. Now, your real your courage should come from God, not from Absinthe and Maria. But yeah, it's nice to think. I mean, I love that sentence: "The world is a fine place and worth the fighting for." And I hate very much to leave it. That's a really noble sentiment, and that's a great Hemingway way to put it. And that's a nice place for Robert Jordan to end his life thinking that thought. And I'd love to end my life thinking that thought. Um, I don't know if that's just a wish wish fulfillment and I'll end my life going, ah, this sucks. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) (laughs) Why did it have to be this way? (laughs) I was so close. I thought it was free. (laughs) Does this book get the coveted booking seal of approval? Meh. I could take it or leave it. I'm never going to read it again. I've read it twice now. When I was 20, it would have gotten like a giant seal of approval. I would have said it was one of my favorite books. We'll each give our our own seal of approval. Jake gives it a meh. What do you give it, Brandon? I'll give it a meh, but with a capital M. (laughs) Was that in the positive or negative direction? That's in the positive direction. So a meh. (laughs) A meh. A meh. Yeah. I mean, he gets the capital M because he's such a fantastic writer. His prose is... Yeah, if you can avoid being seduced by the parts of this book that are seductive and you're an aspiring writer, man, do you get a a lesson in writing from him anyway. It's incomparable. You're not going to find anyone who writes as well as him. But all that said... I've got the same feelings you guys do. This time it didn't do it for me like it used to. And I do think it has to do with maturity. I think he's immature. I think the whole lost generation, the whole... I keep going back to Woody Allen, but I have somebody in mind that I know that loves Hemingway, loves Woody Allen. And it's just it's it's that whole refusal to grow into being anything other than a man completely enslaved to the moment and thinking that you're really poetic because of it. Yeah, it's a meh with a little M. Oh, you're reducing yeah. it. But all that said, you know, you're not going to find a better prose writer, prose yeah. stylist. So cool. if you're if you're a young writer and you're really wanting a teacher, unfortunately a lot of young writers usually don't want teachers. But if you do, good for you. And <laughs> Hemingway's good. So I'll give it a meh. I mean, the style is great. I think Jane Austen, we read her, she is a great articulator of thoughts. I think... Steinbeck was a great storyteller. Hemingway is the first guy that I'd just say is a great writer. You know, a writer's writer. That's well put. A, a person that writes prose. Now, it turns out that Jane's articulation and uh, Steinbeck's 
storytelling were much more meaningful to me this go around than Hemingway's style. But Hemingway is a great stylist, and if, if for no other reason than that, I'd say this book deserves its place in the canon. It's one of those books that if you're not going to be seduced by it, it's worth it's worth having read. All right. Well, I think we gave uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls its due. Now, Brandon, I noticed that you're still polishing your gun from uh, the contextual Texan yeah, segment. Yeah, you see how it's got the deep brown sheen mm-hmm. from all the polishing on it. It's a Civil War gun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My grandfather gave it to me. That's really cool. Yeah. Oh my goodness, Brandon! Oh, you've shot Jake! Oh no, Jake, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I think the bullet passed right through. Right, right through, through what? what? My heart. Ah, no, Jake, why? It's going dark. No, Jake, you're going to live. You're going to get better. Want me to finish him off for you? No, you idiot! Put those guns away. It is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done before. Dying in your own blood on the studio floor. Well, now that you put it that way... (laughs) Jake, no! I don't know if we can do this podcast without you. You have to, Nathan. Do it. Do it for the people. The podcast is a fine podcast and worth fighting for. I hate very much to leave it. I feel like somehow I'm responsible for your death, and especially that Brandon is responsible for your death. How can we go on with the knowledge of how we sinned against you? Tim Shull. Oh, no! Oh, no. Jake! Jake. No. Ah. Ah. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> <laughs>